0: Good morning, Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church. Good morning, and good morning to all of you out there and uh, what do you call it, uh, in your homes listening through whatever devices we have that helps you to listen. I do want to encourage you guys to grab a seat. Um, I'll start calling you out by name here, if I can, <laughs> Michelle. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Let us find a seat. Let us prepare ourselves to read through and to hear um, and to apply the Word of God uh, this morning. Um, I do want to say that Pastor Milton is away. um, And so I have the, the privilege of filling the pulpit in his place I believe he'll be back next week, so if you were really looking forward to hearing him preach, I don't blame you, um, too bad. Um, I'm, I'm the guy that's filling the pulpit this morning, so I always like to refer to myself as third string, because we've got the big dog Milton, we've got Pastor Mike, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm third in line, so this morning it's third string Um, but God is first string and God is good and he is kind and he loves you and he will take unworthy servants such as myself to minister his word to you and so he is our hope he alone is our trust and he is our confidence so let us look to him Let us go to him in prayer, and let us ask him to open our hearts to receive, to open our eyes to see, our ears to hear. So would you uh, join with me in prayer, please? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this Valentine's morning. And Lord, we are thankful to you. For the gift of love, that, Lord, you sent your Son in love to die on a cross for us so that through him we might be in relationship with you. Only by your blood, only through your sacrifice, do we have any right, any hope of entering into your presence, Almighty God. But, Lord, ours is a sure hope. And it is in the mighty name of Jesus that we come to you. And we ask you this morning, God, that you would bless us, that you would minister to us, that you would help us to hear and to understand and to receive and to apply your word to us This morning, we commit this time to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, Last week's Super Bowl, I couldn't resist a reference to the Super Bowl. It was about the greatness of a man who seems to defy the aging process and at the age of 43 wins his seventh Super Bowl. Uh, Tom Brady now has more Super Bowl rings uh, than any other team in NFL history. Uh, he has not finished yet. Perhaps next year's storyline will be, can any team catch up to Tom Brady? Or will the greatest of all time create further separation by going on to win another ring? Uh, You need not be a football fan to recognize Tom Brady's greatness. Uh, For folks who love the game, uh, Tom Brady seems to rise above mere greatness. What he has achieved throughout his career uh, and at his age leads many to believe that he will never be surpassed. Uh, today, Matthew in his gospel will tell us a story designed to reveal the greatness of one who is worthy of worship. And Matthew writes with a burden to convince his Jewish readers of the greatness of Jesus he wants them to be blown away by and utterly convinced that Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy of worship. Uh, and to do this, Matthew addresses the topic of the deity of Jesus. That's his burden throughout the gospel, really. And he wants his readers to realize that uh, Jesus is God. And he wants his readers to follow the example of those in the boat. Those in the boat who at the end of the narrative worshipped Jesus saying, you are certainly God's son. And to be God's son implies that Jesus is the very essence of deity. In the same way that being born of humans makes us human, so too being God's Son makes Jesus God, God the Son. No Jew would have argued against the humanity of Jesus, but to make him equal to God was viewed as blasphemy. And such blasphemy is the very reason most Jews rejected and called for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The crime that the Jews believed called for the crucifixion of Jesus would be the crime of making himself equal to God, declaring that he and the Father are one, doing those things reserved for God alone, such as forgiving the sins of sinners. And for such so-called blasphemy, Jesus would be brutally nailed to a cross. Uh, in our passage today, everything points to the fact that Jesus is divine, and therefore, he is to be worshipped. He is without equal. He does what no man can do. He is the greatest who has ever walked the face of the earth. He truly is the Son of God, and it is befitting to worship Him. And we will see this as we approach the event of Jesus walking on water. Jesus walking on water. And my burden is that we walk away from our passage with a renewed wonder at the greatness of Christ I want our hearts to be filled with awe and wonder at the glory and the majesty and beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to worship. And I want for us, those of us who may be dealing with difficulties, to lay hold of Christ and to feel encouraged by Jesus, that we will see in today's text how Jesus comes to us in the midst of the storm to rescue, to comfort, to admonish, to teach, to strengthen, to prepare. And so I would like for us to turn to Matthew chapter 14, and turn in your copy of God's word, whether that be paper or electronic form, uh, to Matthew chapter 14, and we will begin reading in verse 22. Matthew 14, verse 22. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. ...while he sent the multitudes away. And after he had sent the multitudes away... ...he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land... ...battered by the waves... For the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, and he said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat... The wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. I am entitling the message, Jesus Comes Walking on Water. And we are framing the message around ten developments in the story of Jesus walking on water that revealed the glory ...of his divinity. So let us begin with development number one. Uh, Jesus commands his disciples to board a boat... ...and then sends the multitude away. We see this in verse 22 where it reads... ...and immediately he made the disciples get into the boat... ...and go ahead of him to the other side... ...while he sends the multitudes away... We see here Jesus exercising authority in making His disciples get into the boat to sail to the other side of the sea of Galilee. And to the credit of the disciples, they do what they are directed to do. They obey. And their obedience is later highlighted as we see them in uh, chapter Mark, or Mark chapter six, verse 48. Uh, straining at the oars because the wind was against them. They were straining to get to where Jesus directed them to go. I correct myself. I believe it's um, Matthew six forty-eight there. Uh, and as the disciples made their way to the boat, Jesus exercises authority in sending the multitudes away. So in John 6:15, we learned that the crowd, the crowd, the multitude, a lot of people intended to take Jesus by force, and they were wanting to make him king. They were wanting to make him king. Uh, they were believing that Jesus was the one who would overthrow an oppressive government and be king. And the crowd was determined to facilitate that goal. They failed to understand that entry into his kingdom would be through the cross. Their thinking was wrong. Jesus would not yield to the temptation to be made king. At this point, he refuses to circumvent the cross. He knew what he came to do, and he was not about to compromise his purpose. And thus, Jesus manages to successfully send the multitude away. How does one man succeed in redirecting a multitude determined to seize him and to make him king? Uh, How does one man succeed? Jesus does this by way of divine authority. He shows forth his authority in making his disciples get into the boat And Jesus shows forth his authority by effectively sending the multitudes away. Let us go to development two. While getting away by himself to pray, the disciples face a furious storm. While getting away by himself to pray, the disciples face a furious storm. Verse 23 says, And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Uh, The intrigue of this passage is the fact that Jesus... God in the flesh, the God-man, felt the need to pray. Prayer was a priority for the Lord. One would think that God the Son had had no need to pray, uh, but he prays. Why? What can we make of this? For one, Jesus praying highlights the relationship between God the Son, Jesus, and God the Father. Uh, Christ is praying to someone, and that someone is God the Father. And Jesus prays out of the overflow of being in relationship with the Father. Second, Jesus demonstrates dependence on God the Father through his prayers. Uh, We see this throughout the Gospels. Let's just run through some passages here. Matthew 9.13, 9:13 we read, uh, "Some children were brought to Jesus so that He might lay hands on them and pray. Jesus prayed for children. Uh, Mark 1:35, we read early in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus arose and he went out and he departed to a lonely place, and he was praying there. The night before the whole city brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. Mark tells us the whole city had gathered at the door, and that he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. And so Jesus had had a very busy night, yet the following day he gets up early the next morning to pray. Mark fourteen thirty five says uh, he went a little beyond them. Here we are in the garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus goes a little beyond them, and he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass by him. And so here Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he prays to the Father that he might not have to suffer. Luke 3.21, Jesus also was baptized, we read, and while he was praying, heaven was opened. Luke 5.16, he himself would often slip away uh, to the wilderness and pray. Okay, Jesus was a man of prayer. Uh, Luke 6, 12, he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And the very next day, Jesus chose his disciples before making an extremely important decision. Jesus spends the night before in prayer, Luke nine eighteen, And it came about that while he was praying alone, uh, the disciples were with him, and, and he questioned them, saying, uh, "'Who do the multitude say that I am?' Very important question, preceded by Jesus praying, and he's asking the question of his disciples, who do the multitude say I am? And, and of course, the answer comes out, about Christ, the Son of the living God. But the point here is that prayer preceded Jesus asking his disciples this very important question. Luke nine twenty eight, we read that he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And what happens there on the mountain, the, uh, um, he was transfigured before uh, these three disciples. Luke 11, 1 came about while he was praying in a certain place. After finishing, one of the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so here he is praying, and then the response of the disciples is to come and say, Lord, teach us how to pray, so, you know. Something very important is happening here. And I believe out of the overflow of the prayers of Jesus. Luke twenty-two forty-one 41 says he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. Again, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane in this passage. It says he knelt down and he began to pray saying, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. And so he prays to his father for the cup of wrath not to be poured out upon him. And yet within prayer, Jesus submits himself to the Father's will. He is strengthened by the Father through prayer. Just a few verses later there, Luke twenty-two forty-four, it tells us, Being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And this illustrates the intensity and the fervency with which Jesus prayed, especially in the face of extreme suffering. And of course, we do not forget the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed while hanging on the cross to the Father many prayers in the midst of his suffering. In chapter 17 of John's Gospel... Um, we read uh, the high priestly prayer of Jesus in which he prays for his disciples and all who would believe in him. Jesus prays that all whom the Father has given him would have eternal life, that they would know the only true God, that they would be consumed in the love of God and overflowing with the joy of the Lord. Uh, Jesus prays that those who belong to him would be sanctified by the word of truth. And such a prayer represents the heart of Jesus for those belonging to him. Thus, Jesus prays throughout his earthly ministry. And he continues to pray from his throne on high. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for us now even as I speak to you. His prayers for us are informed by his will for us and what he knows we are going through. He is aware. He knows when we are confronted by the storms of life and he intercedes for us through his prayers And by taking action, in our passage, coming back to the text, we read that Jesus went up to the mountain by himself to pray. The context indicates Jesus must have been aware of the danger his disciples were in. From where Jesus prayed on the mountain, he may have observed the storm, Over the sea. Perhaps the storm had made its way to the mountain from where Jesus prayed. Either way, Jesus was aware of the storm as well as the distress that the disciples must have been in. The disciples may have thought while in the boat that they were all alone. Uh, They may have thought... Since Jesus was not in the boat this time, that their chances of survival were slim. The disciples, keep in mind, obeyed the voice of the Lord. Jesus commanded them to hop in the boat to sail to the other side. They did what they were supposed to do. The fact that they were determined to obey the Lord is highlighted when we later read that the, the, read that the wind was contrary to them. So you've got a picture of them straining to get to where they were supposed to go. The wind is contrary, perhaps pushing them back. It would have been easy just to retreat, go back to where they started at a safe place. But they were pressing on. They were headed toward Capernaum as the winds pushed them back, straining in their efforts to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes, obedience leads straight into a storm. Uh, We recall how uh, when the, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And in our passage, Jesus leads his disciples straight into a storm. But with the storm... There are lessons to be learned. Lessons that the disciples would not have anticipated. Lessons that would mark their lives and their ministries for eternity. There is no way they were thinking Jesus is aware of their situation. Let alone that Jesus would come to them on the footpath of the storm. Let's continue in the narrative development number three. Jesus comes to his disciples walking on the waters of the raging sea. Jesus comes to his disciples and he is walking on the waters of the raging sea. Try to picture that if you can. Verse 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. The fourth watch of the night would have been uh, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. So what this means is that Jesus had spent considerable time in prayer and waited a considerable amount of time before coming to the aid of his disciples. They had been struggling in the storm for quite some time. The Lord comes to his disciples... As they were struggling in the storm, in a timely manner. He is never too early, nor is he too late. His timing is always perfect. The lessons the disciples needed to learn are secured in the length of the struggle they needed to endure. And their greatest need comes to them walking on the waters of the raging sea. Their greatest need was to behold Jesus in the storm. But how do they respond? How do they respond? This takes us to development number four. The disciples failed at first to recognize Jesus. We read in verse 26... And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out for fear. Jesus comes to the disciples walking on the sea. The raging waters serve as the path upon which the Lord walks toward them. Clearly, clearly. He is no ordinary man. In perhaps the oldest book of the Bible, we read in Job 9.8 that God alone tramples down the waves of the sea. The King James Version says it this way, The Lord treadeth upon the waves of the sea. Jesus walking upon the waves of the sea is an expression of his deity. He is God in the flesh. Jesus comes to his disciples as the God-man, but the disciples fail to recognize him. So often the Lord is with us, but we fail to recognize him. Our problem is not with the Lord's presence But with our own perception, the disciples in our text at this point fail to perceive their Lord. And I wonder how often we fail to perceive the Lord. We know that the Lord is omnipresent. The Lord is with us. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 139, verse 7, where can I flee from thy presence? The apostle Paul, in writing to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 5, he tells us that the Lord is near. But often we struggle to perceive the presence of the Lord in our lives. May I submit to you that he is near that he is, in fact, with us, even in the storms of life that come our way. The Lord, in our passage, is near to his disciples. He is present. They saw him but failed to recognize him. Perhaps the storm made it difficult for the disciples to see the Lord clearly. I don't want to come down too hard on them. Perhaps the storm made it hard to see. Nevertheless, our passage makes it clear. It was the Lord walking on the water toward his disciples. And they did not just fail to recognize him. They mistook him for a ghost. A phantom. They believed Jesus to be something he was not. And that is a terrible mistake to make. And because they misperceived Jesus, they were frightened and they cried out for fear. May I submit to you that such fear is a wrong response to Jesus. Jesus is the loving Lord coming toward his disciples. And they respond with sinful fear. In 1 John 4.18, we read that there is... No fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Jesus in no way is coming to his disciples to punish but to protect. The disciples had no reason to fear. Uh, Their fear is rooted in their failure to recognize Christ. When in the storms of life, do you recognize Jesus? Do you embrace the fact that you are loved and that Jesus wants to meet you in the storm? Do you believe and trust in the Jesus who comes to you along the path of the storm? Upon first glance, the disciples fail To recognize Jesus, but they do not just fail to recognize the Jesus they see, but they also fail to recognize the voice of the Jesus they see. This brings us to the next development in the story of Jesus walking on water. Development number five uh, Jesus speaks gracious words. to reveal his identity and relieve the fear of his disciples. Development number five. Jesus speaks gracious words to reveal his identity and relieve the fear of his disciples. Verse 27 reads, but immediately, immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. So now the disciples hear the voice of the Lord. It should be recognized. A familiar voice. And the voice of the Lord issues forth a present tense, active voice command, meaning that they were to obey right now immediately. Take courage. They were commanded in the midst of the storm, in the face of danger, to take courage. They were to be of good cheer. And Jesus follows the positive command with a declaration It is I. It is I. The disciples should have discerned the voice and comforting words of their Lord. There is so much being communicated when Jesus declares, It is I for Matthew's Jewish readers. For his Jewish readers, as we make our way through the gospel, it is the I who performs miracles. The I who cleansed the leper, Matthew 8:3. The I who healed the centurion's paralyzed servant. Matthew 8:13 who healed Peter's mother-in-law Matthew who cast out demons with a word and healed all who were ill, Matthew 8.16, who cast a legion of demons into a herd of swine, Matthew 8.32, who forgave a paralytic of his sins and then healed him to prove that he was divine, Matthew 9.7. For Matthew's readers, these miracles point to the divine nature of Jesus. Truly, He is the Son of God. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus summons the twelve in chapter 10. Uh, They may not have been privy to all of the miracles thus far performed by Jesus, but in Matthew 10, the twelve are summoned and given authority to cast out demons and heal every kind of disease and sickness. In Matthew 12:13, the 12 witness Jesus healing a man with a withered hand. In 12:13, they see Jesus heal a demon-possessed man who is blind and mute. In Matthew 14, we read about the miraculous feeding of the 5000. In Matthew, Mark, and John, this event this feeding of the 5,000 is the event prior to Jesus coming to his disciples, walking on the water. Jesus is a miracle worker. He is no ordinary man. He can do what no human can do. And in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus multiplies five loaves of bread and two fish so that the entire crowd ate. The entire crowd ate. Every single man, woman, and child ate, and they were satisfied. There was enough food left over to fill 12 baskets, one basket for each disciple. Uh, Jesus is a miracle worker who provides and cares for the needs of his people. He is not stingy. In his blessings. And he is to be worshipped. Trusted and obeyed. And this Jesus is the one. Who comes walking on the waters of the storm. Declaring. It is I. Do not be afraid. The disciples see the Lord. And they hear his voice. And they had no reason to fear. But they fail to recognize what they see and hear. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is not faced by the storms we suffer. Such storms cannot stand between us and the Savior. He comes to us in the storm and he speaks, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Yet, so often we fail to recognize that the Lord is with us and that He speaks to us. We see depicted in our text, we see depicted in our text an authoritative, all knowing, powerful, protective, and caring Lord. But at this point of the narrative, the disciples are gripped with fear. They struggle. To recognize. But there is one. There is one. Who seems to hope. And this brings us to development number six. Peter responds in hope. To the word of the Lord. Peter responds in hope. To the word of the Lord. Jesus speaks. And in verse 28 we read. Peter answered him and he said. Lord. If. It is you, you hear the the hesitation, you hear the uncertainty. If it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. Peter is a mixed bag of doubt and trust, unbelief, belief. He is not 100% sure that it is Jesus coming to them. But Peter has enough to go by and he is willing to take a step. He knows the Lord is a miracle worker. It is not outside the question for Jesus to be able to, to walk on water. He has experienced through Jesus authority and power to cast out demons and to heal diseases So, what is a little walking on water? Peter rightly reasons that the Lord could walk on water and enable his follower to do the same. Thus, he engages the Lord. Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He is not putting the Lord to the test. His focus is not experiencing the miraculous peter loves the lord his love for christ is so strong he is willing to risk personal safety to be with the lord and nothing nothing else matters he figures if it's the lord he will be drawn safely to him but if it is not the lord he may sink Perhaps Peter reasons that the reward is worth the risk. Or perhaps Peter figures he may die anyway. Why not take the chance? Uh, I think we can agree that Peter, he wants to be near the Lord. He just wants to be near Christ. And this text, I believe, underscores his love for Christ as well as his desire to know with certainty whether it is the Lord or not. He wants to know. And Jesus desires, listen to this, Jesus desires to remove any uncertainty in the mind of Peter. Jesus wants Peter to know that it is indeed the Lord whom he sees and hears. And Jesus wishes To fulfill Peter's desire to be near his Lord, thus Jesus issues forth the command. And he says, Come, come. Let us not lose sight of the power of such a word. Come. This is the Lord's invitation to Peter to be near him. This is the Lord affirming his desire for Peter to know who he is this is not the only place in scripture where such powerful words are proclaimed by Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28 Jesus proclaims come come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest the invitation to come is extended to all who are weary and heavy laden? To all who are overwhelmed by the burden of their own sins against a holy God, to all who feel tired and worn down in this world marked by sin and suffering, Jesus says, "Come, come to me." In John seven thirty seven, we read Jesus saying, "If any man is thirsty." If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The invitation to come is to those who are thirsty, to those who realize their thirst and they come to Jesus desiring to have the thirst quenched. And so Jesus extends an invitation to those who are weary and heavy laden, to those who thirst To come to him. And in our text, we hear Jesus giving command to Peter. To come. Come. Uh, To come to Jesus is not always easy. It is not always easy. Often there are obstacles to overcome. Often we have to overcome fear. We have to overcome worry. We have to overcome anxiety and doubt. Often there are sins in our life that must be repented of as we come to him. We must be willing to surrender. It's not always easy to come to Jesus. It requires faith. And we see this as we turn to development number seven, where Peter exercises faith by stepping out of the boat and walking on the water toward Jesus. We read that Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and he came toward Jesus. I wasn't too creative in the title of development number seven. Uh, Peter exercises tremendous faith when in obedience to the Lord's command, he steps out of the boat. And so often that first step can be the most difficult Peter takes the step with eyes focused on Christ and he finds himself walking on the waters of the raging sea. Through faith in Christ, Peter does what you would think was impossible. We do not know the number of steps Peter takes. It must have been enough to make the point. The Lord may not be calling you or me to walk on water, but he is calling us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And what he calls us to do, he empowers us to do as well. With your eyes fixed on Jesus and through the power of the gospel, you can surrender your life to Christ. And if you are here with us and you're yet to surrender your life to Christ, I ask you this morning, what is holding you back? What sin is there that prevents you from thinking that you can come to the one who can forgive you all of your sin? Why would you hold back from such a good, loving, kind, and gracious God? Why would you shrink back in fear from the God who comes to you in the storms of life and who invites you to come to him? Why would you shrink back from the one who will raise you up on the last day and allow you entry into heaven where you will live in peace forever and ever? No more weeping, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more disease, no more death. What would prevent you from coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? With your eyes fixed on Jesus and through the power of the gospel, you can surrender to Christ. You can answer the call to offer your body to him as a living sacrifice. You can manifest the Spirit's fruit in your relationships with each other as you heed the call to walk by the Spirit. Husbands, It's Valentine's Day. And you can answer the call to love your wife as Christ loves the church. Wives, it's Valentine's Day. And you can submit to and you can respect your husband as an act of worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Parents can raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord Children can obey their parents in the Lord, and children can honor their aging parents. Through Christ, we can forgive 70 times 7, and with boldness, we can proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can indeed walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which Christ has called us. And what we learn from Peter's act of obedience is that nothing is too difficult for the Lord. If he can empower Peter to walk on water, he can empower us to do what he calls us to do. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Are you confident in Christ? Do you know who he is and what he is able to do in your life? Peter serves as a a wonderful example uh, when he exercises faith by stepping out of the boat and walking on the water. Uh, We learn much from the success of Peter, uh, but we learn also from his failure. We learn from his failure, and this brings us to development number eight. Uh, Peter Looking away from Jesus and focusing on the storm begins to sink before crying out to the Lord for help. We read in verse 30, but seeing the wind, he, Peter, became afraid and and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. He was off to a great start. He responded to the command of Christ to come by stepping out in faith, walking on the water. Uh, His successful obedience flows from focusing on Christ. Likewise, our obedience to Christ is linked to focusing on Him. Throughout Scripture, we are commanded to focus on, to behold Christ. The Bible makes it clear, 2 Corinthians 3.18, for example, that we, as we behold Him, are being transformed. Colossians uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, we read that we are to, to keep seeking the things above where Christ is. We are to set our mind on things above because we know that it is through him that we can do what he calls us to do. And as long as we do that, we can succeed by the grace of God. But Peter looks away from Christ. He gets focused on the wind and he, uh, he allows fear to, to grip his heart. The fear of drowning consumes his mind and he, he begins to sink. The faith he had when he stepped out onto the water escapes him. And in desperation, he cries out to the Lord, 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 save me. And we are not so much different from Peter, are we? I think that's why many of us love Peter. He is a good brother in Christ. He has taught us much. How many of us have experienced Christ in the storm? And in the storm we discover power from him to walk in a worthy manner. We are walking upon the waves of the sea until we lose focus. The storm seems to grow stronger. The raging sea grabs hold of our attention, and we begin to sink. My family, without getting into detail, so forgive me, but briefly, my family uh, has been going through a difficult time, over the past 11 to 12 weeks. I feel like Peter must have felt, I know the Lord is present, but the crisis grabs hold of me and at times it consumes me. Ask my wife, ask my children. At times, I have felt overwhelmed. At a staff meeting, A Zoom staff meeting several weeks ago, I was not doing well. And I shared with the staff that I was not doing well. In tears, I shared. And the staff helped me through their prayers for me. To set my mind on Christ. It helped. It helped. Perhaps you are going through a difficult time right now. You may be struggling to focus on Christ. As the storms of life surround you. Take heart. Take heart. This is part of his plan. This is not by mistake, it's by divine design. The struggle is designed to strengthen you. You may feel like you're sinking, but you will not drown. You will not drown. The Lord is but one prayer away, Lord, save me. And this is what Peter prays as he begins to sink. Lord, save me. And so let us turn to the next development to see how the lord responds number 9 number 9 uh, jesus rescues peter and then graciously admonishes him before safely arriving in the boat verse 31 reads immediately jesus stretched out his hand and he took hold of peter and he said to him oh you of Little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. The Lord's response to Peter's cry, immediate, immediate. He answers Peter's prayer for help without delay. He hears and responds when we cry for help. He stretches out his hand and he takes hold of Peter. At the same time, the Lord prepares his rebuke. (laughs) I'm sorry. He loves us and he will correct us. The storm had not ended, the seas continued to rage. The Lord's rebuke to Peter comes after the rescue, but not before the storm ends. The Lord declares you of little faith. Why? Why did you doubt? Freaking out in the midst of the storm reveals Peter's lack of faith. The storm evidently should not be cause for doubt. Peter had the word of Christ to cling to. The word of Christ was why Peter entered the boat to begin with. He was acting in obedience to his Lord. He knew that Christ intended his disciples to get to the other side. The storm served as as part of the divine plan. Uh, Jesus was aware of the plan when he was praying on the mountain. Jesus was aware of the storm. He comes in perfect timing to his beloved disciples and he commands Peter, come to him on the water. Peter heard the word of the Lord and he had every reason to believe that Christ would bring him safely to his side. Uh, Peter started off well, but struggled with doubt when he lost focus on Christ He cried out for help, and the Lord's rescue is immediate. So here we have Peter safe in the arms of Jesus. Jesus carries Peter through the storm. Now, I am not sure if Jesus is literally carrying Peter, but I can safely say that Jesus is at least carrying Peter figuratively. Uh, Peter is held safely by his Lord the loving and protective care of Christ here in this text is unmistakable. Such love and care came seasoned with rebuke. The Bible says wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses, and Jesus delivers the wound of rebuke. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Implied is the fact that, that Peter lacks trust, He should never have doubted. Also implied is the fact that our Lord is trustworthy. He knows what He is doing. We as His children have every reason to trust in Him. Our Lord has given His word to us so that through His word we might trust in Him. All things work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. He who began the work in you will bring it to completion. We are kept by the power of God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. He will raise us up on the last day. Our Lord is being depicted as our loving, caring Savior who rescues us in the midst of the storm and he brings us safe into his embrace in which he offers rebuke. And such rebuke reveals our greatest need. We need to trust in Christ. And we need to be saved from worry, fear, doubt, We need to trust Christ to be true to his word and to know without question that his promises to us will be fulfilled, that he loves us and he cares deeply for us. And while at it, let me remind all of us that the greatest demonstration of his love for us is when Christ suffered and sacrificed his beaten and bloodied body on the cross in our place. He hung on the cross, taking our place, taking upon himself the wrath that should have been poured out upon each and every single one of us so that through his death we might be freed from the guilt and the power that sin has in our lives. The Bible says, by his stripes we are healed. In him we are complete. Our text tells us that when they got into the boat, when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Imagine the contrast, instant contrast. The raging storm ceases at once from pandemonium and panic to peace. And yet there was never reason for fear. Let us look at the final development here in the passage. And I think everything is seeking to direct us to this. I believe Matthew is desiring for this to be the effect in our hearts. Jesus is worshipped as being the Son of God. Verse 33 says that those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Mark in his gospel tells us they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, for their heart was hard. Let me read that again. This, this is coming out of Mark. Okay, I'm kind of using the parallel account here. Mark says, they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. In Mark's gospel, the response of being utterly astonished reveals a hard heart. The miraculous power and loving care of Christ should not come as a surprise. We should not be astonished when we see our Lord providing and caring for His children. Even when such provision and care comes supernaturally, we should not be utterly astonished. I would admit that I am guilty. There are times when the Lord comes through on my behalf and and I'm astonished, (laughs) but why? Why? Why should His goodness and grace and loving kindness, why should those things catch me by surprise? Why should I be astonished? Why should I be like, oh my goodness, wow. I mean, there's a place for thankfulness. There's a place for joy. But we ought not to be utterly astonished when we see that our Lord is is there for us. Should we not expect our loving Lord to meet us in the storm? And carry us through? Does not the cross make it abundantly clear that Christ will weather whatever storm on our behalf in order to bring us safely to the other side? Matthew tells us that the disciples worshipped. Matthew's gospel, now back to our text. The disciples worshipped. Uh, This is a right response to the glory and majesty of Jesus. And and listen to what the disciples, according to Matthew, conclude. You are certainly God's son. There is no doubt. If they had doubt before, they knew it now. Jesus is very God from God. He is fully God, the God-man. And therefore, it is appropriate to worship Jesus. You will notice that Jesus does not rebuke them for worshiping him. He is to be worshiped because he is, in fact, God. And this is Matthew's burden in writing to the Jewish audience to convince them of the divinity of Jesus. The title of God's Son is applied to Jesus and other parts of the gospel. I want us to consider Matthew's final reference. After Jesus had been crucified and died on the cross, we read in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-four. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. As they noticed and beheld and observed how he died on a cross for the sins of humanity, and the events that immediately followed, and things like the temple being rent into, they knew without doubt in their mind that he was no ordinary man. He is the Son of God who gave himself as a sacrifice for sinners such as ourselves. Truly, this was the Son of God the only one who could rightly die in our stead and represent God to us and us to God. He is the mediator between God and man. It is the man, Christ Jesus. And truly he is the son of God and he is to be worshipped. And so throughout the narrative, we're getting close, guys, very close. Throughout the narrative, we behold the greatness and the glory of our Lord Jesus, he possesses divine authority in prayer. He draws close to the Father with an intimacy that is unmatched. He intercedes for us. He's aware of life's storms, and he draws near to his disciples at just the right time. He walks upon the waters of the raging sea with a gate strong and steady. There is no storm so strong that the Lord cannot conquer. He loves us, he cares for us, and he comes to us in the midst of the storm. Despite our doubt, he remains persistent in his efforts to make himself known. He willingly unleashes his divine power in our lives. We can do all things Through Christ who gives us strength, we can persevere through the storms of life and despite our fears and our failures, our Lord strives with us. The work he has started in us will come to completion. We have his word and his trustworthy His word is trustworthy indeed. We may stumble and we may fall. We may lose focus and begin to sink. Yet he will grab hold of us and bring us back into the boat safely, but not before he teaches us the lessons that we need to learn. He will bring the storm to a merciful end and he will lead us safely to the other side. And so, let us join the disciples in the boat, and with the raging winds having been stilled, let us declare that truly He is the Son of God. Dear Lord Jesus, we worship You, Lord. We honor You, Jesus. Lord, we come to you in our brokenness, acknowledging, Lord, that you have much reason to rebuke us for ways in which we struggle. And yet, Lord, you love us with a love that will never end. It is an infinite love, Lord. It is a love beyond comprehension. You love us, Lord, demonstrating that love through the sacrifice of your body on the cross for us, Lord. It is high and deep and wide and beyond measure, Lord. It comes crashing against us as a tsunami, Lord, that we cannot avoid. We thank you, Lord, for the storms of life. We thank you, Lord, that in those storms you come alongside and you save us, but not without admonishment because you love us. We thank you, Lord, that even in the midst of the rebuke, we know that you are with us and you hold us in your arms, Lord. You remember that we are but dust. You remember, Lord, that we are sick, and that's why we needed a physician. We give thanks to you, we give praise, and we worship you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy and your kindness. We exalt you together. I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone here who has yet to put their trust in you, Lord, you would cause them, Lord, that you would break through their hardened heart. Give them faith to believe, only you can give faith to believe, Lord. Only you can open blind eyes to see. Lord, we have friends and family, co-workers, neighbors. We pray, Lord, that you would have mercy, that you would open blind eyes to see We give ourselves to you, Lord, as your children and ask that you would give boldness to us to make known the gospel. Let us not hold back. Who do you want us, Lord, to go to this week? Who do you want us to call this week, Lord? Who do you want us to talk to this week, Lord? What neighbor, what family member, Lord, who... And Lord, open the eyes of their understanding, empower us, and may you be exalted, O Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.